What is going on, everybody? It's your favorite, bestest, everest podcast host, Sean Cudahy of the Room 9 Podcast, introducing to you episode 28. And I am recording this in my car right now, believe it or not. I wanted to get it done before I head into this amazing part-time job that I'm doing. And I say amazing very sarcastically, but it's doing what I need to do right now, providing a little extra finances to keep pushing this Room 9 message out. You guys would also like to help push the Room 9 message out. Room9podcast.com backslash support. And you can uh, give us a one-time donation. Sign up for Patreon. Give us a monthly donation. Whichever you prefer. And that would just help further the message that we are trying to put out there to everybody about substance use disorder. And how the importance of education is for family members and just people in general. And getting this message out because this is something that is not slowing down. Thank you to everybody who is already supporting Room 9. Whether it's financially, whether it's just help spreading a message, sharing Facebook posts, sharing episodes, whatever it may be. You guys are all greatly appreciated. Even those little messages of encouragement that get sent to me are amazing. So I greatly appreciate it. In episode 28 coming up here, I sit down with the vice president of Horizon Village, Brandy Vandermark Murray. We have a great conversation. As always, the people who are working at Horizon Health are just incredibly passionate about what they are doing and passionate about helping everybody in that is dealing with this epidemic of addiction. Hope you guys very much will enjoy this episode. It was awesome conversation with Brandy. And make sure that you show your support for them over at Horizon Health as well. So without further ado, episode 28, Brandy Vandermark Murray. Later. Wait a minute. You're Sean Cuttingham. That's right. How are you going to know? You're Sean Cunningham. Stop asking fucking questions. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. You better believe it. Oh, you better believe it. That's right. Yeah, good. We're good. Okay. So, yeah, like I said, Brandy, I like just keep it chill. Sure. So, I mean, that's what I'm all about. I like having that very just conversation like we're out having coffee which we are in your office, pretty much. We are, from Monday morning on a rainy day. <laughs> and, oh, the weather is ridiculous in May. I've been tired. I heard something on the radio the other day that April, so I think there's 30 days in April, and 18 of them were rainy, and then eight out of the other, what, 12 were under 40 degrees. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so that was that was the month of April, which I'm about, I'm about done with it. Yeah, for sure. I am definitely <laughs> done with it. So you are the vice president at Horizon Health. Um, Horizon Village. Horizon Village, you yeah. are. Okay. What what parts do you have with Terrace House then? Sure. So um, Horizon Village is actually a third of Horizon Health. So if you kind of okay. think of the company as like administrative um, health services and then Horizon Village, which is um, all things residential. So it's detox services, stabilization services, and then all those services out on the campus um, where you work, Sean. So it's the women's program, um, mm-hmm. the veterans program, the young adult program, and the traditional program. And so I oversee all of that piece from a clinical and operational perspective. And then I just help with special projects in the company from you know, different opportunities that we take on. So when you say special projects, as far as like outside of Horizon? No, within Horizon. Within Horizon, okay. But we're a fairly big team, and so there's always new opportunities. And so while my title is part of um, Horizon Village, if a new opportunity came to the organization, you know, I definitely have the opportunity to be a part of that. Um, Women's initiatives, um, we did the open access project. So whatever essentially I can help with, I'll try. Yeah, I've seen, I think I read, I think it might have been on the Horizon page that you, 
you've done a lot of work with women in domestic violence, correct? Correct. It's where my foundation was. I wouldn't say it's necessarily like my specialty because most of the population we treat, 70% is men. Um, but it is an area that like I'm an advocate for. It's partially how I got involved in the career. It's something that, you know, the women's program, Aurora Village, that opened this past year. Mm -hmm. I'm very mindful of um, the specialty areas of that population, the advocacy we need to do. So I oversee the women's treatment program at Horizons, and that's a group of managers who are just really thinking new initiatives, like how do we keep bringing services for women? Um, Because we want to engage them more in the treatment process. Yeah, that was a huge, because I was there at the end at Horizon Village. So my last week or so, all the women were out completely, finally. And that was a huge talk of the town. Yeah, it's always a weird (laughs) transition. Every time we open up a program, you know, I've been through openings of various programs and we've moved patients. Some people are so excited, right? And other people, the community that they've bonded relationships with, there's a little bit of resistance sometimes. Mm Aurora has been open since October. um, So you must have been there around that time. Yeah, I left in the middle of October. And um, it's really settled. We don't have that resistance of trying to be in the co-ed facility anymore. They really have bonded, come together, and we're seeing some really great results. Yeah, there were some some difficulties. I know all the guys naturally, which Mm -hmm. I thought that was hysterical to me going in and seeing like groups of guys flock to certain women. I, oh, yeah. I thought the the dudes would be worse off because I felt like testosterone would start kicking in and mm-hmm. all the male eagles would start coming out more. But I thought for the women that would be, I feel like they'd be more comfortable to share personal things when it's all women Absolutely. and felt more, feel more understood and everything else. Yeah. And that was always my argument because everybody's like, it's going to be worse. Nobody wants that. And mm-hmm. Oh, that was like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would feel as much as I can put my, myself in the shoes of a woman, I would be more comfortable sharing personal things, especially when it comes to violence mm-hmm. and, you know, sexual things that it would absolutely it would be more comfortable with the same sex around. Yeah. And we wanted to um, reduce distractions in general. You know, we we know that some people do well in co-ed programs, but the reality is, is it can feel very much like even like a college, right, where there's just all these distractions. And part of recovery is um, removing those distractions initially and focusing on yourself. And so, you know, we tried to kind of redirect a lot of people, but it always settles. Like I said, after 30 to 60 days, when we move people around on the campus, things always it settle. settles down. Yeah. 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 I've seen that. That was funny. Have you seen any... Was there like a spike in, no, I don't want to say violence or silly, but confrontation at um, Horizon with all the guys? Um, no, actually not at all. No? And, okay. um, you know, we part of it is being prepared for change. You know, mm-hmm. our staff have to acknowledge that it's difficult for the patients. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a small change or like a big change like that. Um, so a lot of it was dialogue, conversation, but also having leaders and the residents step up and really, for an example, kind of say like there's some great things we can do now like we for example put a workout room back in horizon village um little things like that where it's like you know we also are putting more energy and attention on your needs when we have these specialty populations Mm -hmm. and people in communities when you have really strong advocates for recovery the patients can really be resourceful to help us and so you know no more than back when we were co-ed program, um, every once in a while, someone is in the community where they just struggle living with other people or they struggle with their own, you know, behavioral issues. And and we have to sometimes make decisions that they can't stay there if violence is going to be something they're going to engage in. But no, I was really happy. It was actually pretty smooth. It was a smooth transition. That's good. Yeah. I was wondering that how it was going. Yeah. No, it's going well. In the women's program, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, women's programs, they're going to be screaming at each other. They're going to be catty. You have a little bit of that, but you also work through that. We're teaching Mm -hmm. them that you can't approach relationships like that. And as a result, you know, we actually have a lot of people waiting to get into Aurora because they want to be in a women's program. That need is absolutely there in the community. Yeah. I I feel like that's always kind of been that the women have kind of gotten almost the short end of the stick when it comes to addiction and recovery and substance use. Um, part of the short end of the stick is the challenges for women to come into treatment. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, well, there's always a challenge for everyone. It's a big life decision. You know, we have a lot of shame and guilt. And I say that because as a society, we have that, you know, but with women in particular, if you are going into a program and seven out of the 10 our men, you know, there's also that kind of barrier. There's the barrier that we have a lot of females who are still, you know, single households. Mm -hmm. And so childcare is a barrier. And a lot of them hide it really well. 
Um, women tend to hide addiction a little bit more than men for, for various reasons. You know, they may not be the ones going out there and getting substances they're at home using. They tend to depression, anxiety, all that kind of stuff comes out and people you know, dismiss it sometimes in women, mm-hmm. where with men, sometimes you see more violence or more like just uh, overt behavioral issues coming. And so they get more attention with that. That's changed, I think, a little bit in the past five years. Not a lot, but it's changed because mostly the opiate epidemic. You know, we have more younger women using those substances hand in hand with their male peers. And so our demographics are changing. Now it's about six to four, you know, if you kind of think about that. Um, but it does change all the time. Sometimes I am trying to get women in and sometimes, you know, I don't have a long wait list with women, you know, but with women in particular, we also know that when they hide it, they hide it well, but when they're using, they tend to kind of rapidly go through it pretty quickly as mm-hmm. well, just like with any of the other opiate users that we're seeing. Yeah. My, mine was pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I think I started with the pills and it was not even a year and a half before I was full blown out and everything was, my life was pretty much well in shambles. Absolutely. And <laughs> and that's that the path of opiate use. You know, I have very few patients that come in and have not fallen down that path quickly. I have a lot of patients who have stayed out using for years and years and years, but we're seeing more and more within probably six to 12 months, people's lives really um, oh, in shambles. Oh, just runes. And I think it's awesome that there's, there's so much starting to happen in especially this community for addiction and especially for opiate addiction. Yeah. Um, We talk about education, you know, in general and the importance of just talking about it. And I think about, you know, I've been with Horizon for 13 years as a clinician. I was starting and my first patient who was really addicted to opiates was probably 2006. So if you think about that, you know, that's over 10 years ago. But at the time, people didn't really talk about it as much. It definitely wasn't as prevalent of a discussion, even at like the family dinner table talking about people. Oh, you know. Yeah. Now, everywhere I go, anywhere I go, if someone finds out what I do, I either they talk to me about a thank you. Thank you for helping our community. Or they have someone they're trying to get into treatment. Right. Or they know someone. So, you know, just talking about it opens up the door to have conversations about the risk factors. It is. It's amazing what language can do sometimes mm-hmm. when you uh, say things out loud. Yeah. Because that is the trouble. Because you started, you said 2006, you started as a counselor, correct? Um, I did. Substance use counselor? Yeah. Um, in 2006, I came to Horizons and was working um, as a substance use counselor um, at the Boulevard, actually, one of the bigger locations. And I actually started mostly working with adolescents and not any particular reason other than there was a need at the time, you know, I thought it as an opportunity to engage a population that was really challenging. So for the first few years, that's kind of what I did was women and children actually over there. Yeah, that's huge too. I did um, a podcast with Friends of Recovery. They're based out of Rochester. Mm Mm-hmm. And she, it's not Kids Escaping Drugs as Buffalo. What is the name of the damn organization that is out there? Oh my gosh, I'm having a brain fart. But she works with teens. She got clean actually in high school. And she works with all these teens. And the importance of like hitting a community early on mm-hmm. is, I mean, huge. I think one of the, when I look for positive things for my addiction, which there are a lot that I've turned them into anyway. One of the biggest things is my girlfriend, I've been with her for five years, and her son is 17, and her daughter is 15. And I think that's one of the biggest things that they were woken up to yeah. through all of this was, like, this is real, this is around, this can happen, and I'm praying that, um, you know, that they've learned, that they've, they've seen something and will totally, hopefully, learn from my mistakes, because that's, you know, it's even something I've shared with my own 12-year-old. Yeah. I mean, I haven't talked much about it with my six-year-old. But my son, I, you know, not into great detail, but told them, you know, I was gone this past summer because, you know, I was struggling with this and I needed to work on myself so I could be here for the rest of your life and be a good father. And I think that's important to really hit teens at a young age. Yeah, absolutely. Prevention is part of our approach to, you know, helping people recover. But having those conversations with children, they they know more than we think, absolutely. you know, especially when yeah, you think I of a 12 um, and we don't have to be so specific, but we just have to acknowledge that they're maybe feeling things, they're upset, they're scared. And so having those conversations, you know, and a lot of times young adults, when they come in, when I was doing the program at the Boulevard, you know, it it was marijuana, it was alcohol, it was a lot of behavioral type stuff. It mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily um, harder drugs at that time. It did happen. People, you know, 
were starting to dabble in and they eventually got into some hard drugs. But um, those conversations just about acknowledging that like it's okay to talk about your feelings were the ones that we really focused on and that just having community and having people around you that your peers you could talk to as a positive influence. But yeah, it's definitely um, young and young, younger and younger people are coming in as part of the family system. You know, our family program, I mean, at the campus, um, we have young people who come in all the time to visit their loved ones. And we have to acknowledge that they have to have some understanding of what's going on. Which that's what you guys do in an awesome family program out there. And Antome, you guys are building a facility. We are. Yeah, we're building a family training center slash kind of recovery center Mm -hmm. because we over the years have grown the campus as you know Um, it started with a 50 bed and now it's over 125 beds that's 125 individuals who are bringing family members Mm -hmm. and loved ones in and so our old style of you know just using space that we had is not necessarily conducive to the needs that we have and that could be smaller family sessions or it could be big you know presentations we give it could be those programs where you know the families come out in the summer and Mm -hmm. they just have a huge picnic and we have 150 people on the campus that we want to make sure that they're they have space they're comfortable in that they understand that it's not we're putting them in a room it's a dark place um we want people to come out and celebrate their loved ones recovery with them yeah my my family was extremely my mom and sister my mom was out there every tuesday every saturday good she would make it out there my sister was out at least once a week and they just have taken full advantage of it my father not so much but he has his own battles he's dealing with yeah but it's been they've loved it and that's such an important thing one of my like main things that i love doing with this podcast is doing them with family members Mm -hmm. and getting it out there like i did a a episode with a couple from they volunteer at save the michaels their son died of an overdose and it's just and they just say everybody says like educate yourself if you're know somebody love somebody who's struggling with it it is so important to educate yourself on how to handle it how to deal with it mm-hmm. because i mean that makes i think the world a difference my family's support but yet towards the end of everything my mom and parents having those boundaries and but still loving and supportive completely is really is what has helped me get through and get to the point where i'm at so quickly mm-hmm. is that love and support around me along with but you can't do this. If you do this, we start back over here. And, you know, just having no strict rules, but just ed- educating themselves. Yeah. Because my mom, my mom was clueless, really, to everything mm-hmm. when it when it came down to it, how to do it and how to even set boundaries or whatever it is. So I think that's awesome. You guys have a wonderful family program going. And that's really awesome to have a whole separate building for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we want part of, you know, as we expand to is we have to do more and it's not just with families sometimes sometimes it's even with providing education to people in the community you know who are aren't impacted yet you know who just want to kind of have education so the family recovery center or, or training center i don't really know exactly what we're going to call it will also be a place where we can bring community members in and open their eyes and understanding of the services that we have that's yeah that's great i wanted to talk to you about because it just popped in my head when we were talking about the women going to rehab and mm-hmm. how there's kind of not been enough you know resources for them have you guys ever like put in i did a podcast with a woman she's from chicago and she's been clean for about 10 years but she had a kid and went into rehab where they where her kid also can go with them was there have you guys ever thought about i can't imagine yeah obviously that's a very vague question because i know there's so many things that go into and responsibilities and everything else Um, there are programs sean that and locally there are programs that have those services Um, it's a specific type of service right Mm -hmm. because you are then providing daycare services and you're providing different parenting services and things like that so you know i can say we have not committed to doing something like that but we do partner with people in the community, um, such as like Lighthouse or Madonna House, okay. um, to make sure if that is something that the patients really want to work on, they have those services available. So not so a lot of the females that come in specifically to Aurora Village, while many of them are are parents, a lot of them actually want the time to themselves, and, and not selfishly. And they still you know want to be with their children, and they still love their children, but they're just not well enough to to be in mm-hmm. the parenting role. And so we also want to make sure we have the programs that are are really going to help stabilize and rehabilitate those individuals, so they can be better parents when they leave. So in the program that we run, we do incorporate things such as parenting classes 
classes, such as, you know, education classes, things that are going to help them with the foundation, but not all of them are ready or even sometimes have the legal rights to have their children yet. And so we have to offer both of those services Mm -hmm. in the community. And so we do offer the other services with our partners and we encourage people all the time just to tell us what the barriers are so we can work through them. But we're not doing this alone. You know, Horizons isn't everything to everyone. We just want to make sure the things we do, we do really well in quality work. Yeah, that's, I don't know why that popped in my head. I was just thinking like, cause I feel like that's a big, well, that's something I've experienced with, you know, just talking with other people throughout my whole stay was I noticed very quickly people were always, all right, I got to get back to work and pay these bills. I got, my kids are there and doing this and I got to get back to this job or I'm going to lose it. And I, I like observed this very quickly, you know, in my stay, cause this was my first go around first time being arrested, first time in rehabs and everything. So this has been my first go around and I observed very quickly. I like, I noticed people were just rushing to get out and anytime I remember making that commitment to myself. Anytime that feeling came up of, I want to be, I'm missing out on something. I need to get like, and I would slow myself down mm-hmm. and be like, take this time to do what you need to do now so that you don't come back. Yeah. That you don't become a part of this cycle that you, I've seen so many people in that they can't get out of it. Yeah. We have a lot of patients where that language comes up a lot. You know, a job opportunity comes up. I think about the summertime, right? When we have things come up like construction or Mm -hmm. seasonal employment. And, you know, when I was a direct clinician and even as, you know, a supervisor or a program director or whatever it may be, we used to have those conversations a lot about play it out. Like, you know, temporarily you might be missing out, but like what happens in six months, 12 months when you don't have a good foundation, you miss out on more or you sometimes don't have the opportunity to even come back and work on yourself. Mm. And, you know, I don't want to minimize, you know, the decision to come in, but not many people get an opportunity to truly work on themselves for a few months and truly just spend some time looking inward and thinking about what they need to do. And so look at it as an opportunity and it's not for a lot of people, a blessing because not, not everyone gets an opportunity to even come in the doors. And I don't say that because of wait list, but some people either with all the barriers I just talked about, or some people don't even make it to come into rehab. Yeah, it, it's insane how many people are dying. Yeah, yeah it's it, absolutely insane. I, yeah, I found that I definitely, I learned to very much, I had my moments, but really enjoy the time that I had yeah. to really work on myself, even up to the point where, you know, I started doing this podcast and everything, because I think it's important, you know, you become very complacent, especially when you're out of rehab Yeah, and you can become very bored. And I think that's a huge, I see a huge thing that leads up to people using is just when they're out and not working and you're collecting some money for social services mm-hmm. and your rent's paid for and you're in an Oxford house, you don't got to worry about nothing. It, I see that's a huge problem. Yeah. And, but that's something I've really have learned is all right, I'm going to enjoy my downtime and love that. But I've, you know, I found stuff to keep me busy, but going, even going back to work now, like I told you before we hit record, I'm like, oh, this regular job stuff, this is insane. I can't do this very for much longer. Mm-hmm. Well, we have people and we say, try to just find something you're passionate about, but also be okay with being bored a little bit. You know, you mm-hmm. have to be able to sit with that boredom and sit with that downtime. You know, I know you probably did the DBT and stuff like that, yep. but um, really making sure that people acknowledge that that's also part of your life. And that's Absolutely. a healthy part of having balance. You, we can't have you entertained and we can't have you activated all the time. And you need time to learn that. And that's why when we talk about like length of stay, just because someone like maybe understands addiction or looks healthier, you know, six weeks in, it's really not a lot because you're, you're revamping your whole lifestyle. Um, oh my and gosh, we look at yeah. That. Six months. Yeah. Even six weeks, six months. I feel I'm going uh, over 13 months now and I still have to, I mean, I think it's something you always have to be aware of mm-hmm. um, when you're dealing with substance use is, that just little pull sometimes of just a little knock on a door. I feel like addiction is always there, just kind of waiting for you to let your guard down. Yeah. And I noticed that was another thing. I become obsessed with things, like certain thoughts. I, that's why I fell in love with like philosophy, you know, what is truth or do we have free will or not? Like these are things I just, when I become obsessed with something, I intend to just like put everything, I'm researching, listening to different people's points of view. And one of the things I became obsessed with very quickly is, why you know why are people relapsing so much like what is i don't understand this what are they not figuring out or what is not happening that they just keep going back to this because they know i mean you know it ruins your life Mm -hmm. i know if i go back and start using and even take some pills 
even if my mind convinces me, oh, just you can you can control it now. Like I know before I swallow that pill that this is very much well a very big possibility I'm going to back and back up at square one. Yeah. Like people know that. So what is it that is driving that allows them to ignore that and go and go use? And I've just been obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to figure it out, trying to pull it in. And not that there's really any one answer for it. But I knew like right away I seen people would get confident after a certain time. They'd get overconfident. Mm-hmm. And I just I came up with a quote that I, to this day I say to myself every day. It's like I know I got this as long as I know I don't got this. Yeah. As long as I'm continuously working on my recovery which has been one of the biggest things for this podcast is it's helped me. This is the number one person. It constantly, every time I make a social media post or try to network or edit or do a podcast with somebody, my recovery is right there with me. Like it's reminded me of where I've came from and all the hell I had to go through to get to where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a huge, a huge thing with people is they, they just, they lose touch of it. Yeah. Somewhere along the line. We talk a lot about, you know, willpower, and you know what that means for some people because some people really believe that even when they're here and so Mm -hmm. you know we kind of go back to the basics of you know smart recovery versus strong recovery you know you can white knuckle it you can do all these things and just rely on willpower but what if you can try all these things to really help you put a preventive in place you know if you had a loved one where you know there was a risk factor of um, them having a heart attack would you just say well i'm just gonna willpower no you would have a change <laughs> on a diet you would ask them to exercise you would try to get those things around them to be preventive nothing is guaranteed you know i teach a class at canisius in their graduate department and a lot of the students that i work with some of them have personal experiences with um, opiate addiction as far as loved ones mm-hmm. but a lot of them this is kind of their first opportunity to have some really open conversations about opiate addiction and we put it in the curriculum because of anywhere you go into counseling you can come in to contact with someone who is going to be impacted by this addiction in general, but we just specifically were talking mm-hmm. about opiates. And a lot of my students, we had this really open dialogue around, you know, relapse as part of the process and, you know, concept of choice. And it was really under- eye-opening for me that even people who have been in the field or are working in the field, you know, are sometimes struggling with that concept still. And so we all kind of came to a place of like, you know, a lot of that heeds warning. It doesn't mean that it is just going to happen. It just means that, to your point, we want our patients to be mindful of the risk Mm -hmm. so they can live a quality life. We don't want to scare them. We don't want them to not enjoy life and always be fearful of relapse. But we want them to know, you know, you can build a really great foundation and keep working this recovery. But just be mindful that one time, yes, it could take it completely back Mm -hmm. to where it was. And I've seen it happen so many times. I've seen people go out and be beautiful and amazing when they're leaving treatment, right? And they're in their best self. And sometimes shortly after, sometimes a week later, you know, they're back and um, we kind of look at, well, what happened? And oftentimes is, you know, I didn't do what I knew I should do. I didn't reach out. Mm. I got cocky, whatever it may be. And so part of our treatment is, so how are we going to remember that when you leave again? Like, what are we going to work on that's going to be different, you know, Um, and keep encouraging people and giving people hope because it is really scary. And We've lost a lot of patients where they've done very, very well. And that one time, like I said, led them to a place where they couldn't come back and ask for help. Yeah, I've had a couple of people when I was at Horizon Village leave while I was there and end up being back there before I left. Yeah. And it's, it is, I think it's something that, I mean, each time you're there, because I personally, I kind of just come down, there's, there's obviously there's a lack of self-awareness somewhere, I believe. You know, along the line, you haven't found, you didn't see something and weren't able to grab a hold of it that that time around and then you're going to come back and try to work on more and then find out what it is but i think whether or not because i know there's still that debate about whether addiction is a disease or not i think whether you believe that or not i think looking at it and treating it like a disease is the best possible route yeah absolutely i mean like you said it yourself you're not gonna you know if you treat it like somebody has cancer or has heart problems and you treat it like that, there's so many more, so much more better results that come from that. And it helps remove for the family that stigma and shame because it helps them understand a little bit more like that not people often will say like, what did I do to help my family member or have my family member mm-hmm. use? And, you know, while we know there's social aspects of why people use substances, it helps you understand that like people don't just stop because they love you more or people don't use because they love you less. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, helping people understand the brain chemistry, Pete, 
piece while you know I don't get stuck in the science it helps them understand this is really difficult we're reconditioning the brain and that helps family members just understand the work that has to be put in yeah I mean that's not easy to do with anything whether it's drugs whether it's any other habit that you have it's something when you when your brain is you know so used to doing something you can do without even thinking about it Mm -hmm. it's insane how difficult it can be to break that and become more aware of it yeah I remember I'm trying to think what was oh my the way I walked. I remember trying to like straighten my feet out. I noticed that it like, I kind of walked like pigeon toed. I think that's what they call it. And I wanted to start, all right, I want to walk normally. It took me forever (laughs) to be able to like keep my feet straight as I walk. Yep. So it's just, I mean, difficult to do that with anything, especially when it comes with to addiction. Well, and you at that time, Sean, I mean, that's obviously like a, a small example, but you also didn't have chemicals in your brain challenging you Mm -hmm. to not do it right so you kind of have to think about that piece and with young adults you know i think a lot of times they think oh my brain will just heal it's still developing or maybe they just don't even think five years ahead but we have to explain to them really really directly that the damage that you're doing is going to take a long time to heal if it heals and so that part of the education helps people understand that like they have control of what they can do with their health um and this is a health crisis this isn't just a mental health crisis. absolutely yeah yeah, that's uh, it's huge because, like I said, I'm over 13 months clean, and I still see there's certain things that trigger that I'm very aware of. Like if I'm in maybe a certain spot, or I go to a, a certain concert, or wherever it is that I specifically remember always, even if it's just having some beers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that like feeling that you can get sometimes when you're just in a certain area. Yeah. So there's so many different aspects of what can cause and trigger different, you know, behaviors as far as going back into relapse. And it is, I mean, to really just educate people and try to get them to become aware of them, mm-hmm. you know, is the biggest thing. I think one of the things I've seen too, which is an issue is people when they're in these places don't want to put that effort in a lot of times. Yeah. And I've seen that become a big issue as if, you know, son of a bitch, <laughs> I cannot believe I forgot to turn that off. Sorry. (laughs) I've seen that as a huge issue that people just didn't want to put any effort in. And that was probably another one of my five big observations when I first started to get into rehab that I knew I had to, you know, put everything into it Mm -hmm. that I could. Well, we do have patients sometimes, I think, who are maybe not ready. And I I hate using that term sometimes because people can get opportunities to get ready anytime mm-hmm. in the treatment process. Yeah. And so part of our job is to kind of figure out from a person-centered perspective, like how do we engage people to, to want to put some effort into it? Because not everyone comes in completely like, yes, I want to change my life. I'm good. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of variables that happen. But what I can say is as far as residential, um, what I enjoy about residential the most is seeing peers help people stay motivated, mm. but also When they see someone else working on something and seeing that their life is getting better, the opportunity for them to go, huh, I can probably do that too. And so the power of community is really strong. You know, I've worked in outpatient, I've worked in detox, I've worked in inpatient, residential, all those programs. But that is one of the things that I think we offer from a residential perspective is that power of community. I've seen so many times, even in the detox unit, where someone comes in, doesn't want to stay, they're scared, lots of things are happening for them emotionally and physically. And someone is sitting at their bedside telling them, you know, their story and, you know, what motivated them or just encouraging them. Mm -hmm. And then you see them form relationships that can be very supportive through the process. And so I know there's a lot of things we talked about, like about relapse and struggles and all that, but there's a lot of really amazing things that happen when you come into a community like that. Yeah. I mean, I still very close with two guys. I was at her, we both came in within, all three of us came within three days of each other. And I'm still very close and connected with those people. There's probably three or four other people that I stay in contact with. So you do, you form these, these awesome relationships at, at, uh, when you're there. I think it's, it's an awesome thing, which kind of leads me to another thought about as far as like just having that connection with, you know, everybody needs to feel that connection. And I think that's a huge, huge reason for even just use in general is because people feel this lack of connection in their lives mm-hmm. and this lack of love. And I think that's huge as a community even you know outside of rehabs but just in your general area i think that's a big like great starting point as far as trying to end this whole crisis and everything else is working in communities and having more outreach and more things like that i think that's a huge thing yeah there's a lot of um you know 
when you go and see different national lectures or different conversations or even other podcasts, that is something you'll start to see a little bit more is, you know, addiction isolates, right? Addiction creates isolation. It creates loneliness, it creates shame, it creates all these negative things that happen. And so, you know, a lot of people recently have said that the opposite of uh, addiction is connection, right? And connection, not just to people, but to yourself, to really kind of connect with yourself and say, like, I deserve recovery. I deserve to be a valued person. And those might sound kind of like these positive affirmations that people say, but truly believing those. And then when people leave programs, having them feel connected to their families or connected to education programs or connected to just peer groups, you know, like all that. But outside of addiction, we have created these things where people isolate all the time by themselves, whether it be through technology or whether it be through differences. And so they don't reach out to you because you're different than me. So we're trying to emphasize to people that even if you have depression or even if you are anxious about things, it's really important to find connections mm-hmm. at every level because when you are struggling at your worst state, reaching out and asking for help is going to be essentially what's going to help you, you know? And a lot of people are like, well, you know, I'm not sure if I can do that. Well, like the practice it, you have to practice it when you're doing well. Because if you practice it for the first time when you're about to pick up, it's, it's too late. Work. It's yep. too late. Um, but connection, we talk about it a lot. And, um, you know, we want people to realize that it takes a lot of work, but it's so meaningful. People get that because they feel alone when they walk through these doors. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely a, a big thing. And saying those, you know, those positive affirmations, I found out. While I was in jail, I, you know, one of the things I realized is I need to learn how I talk to myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to stop, even if I spill over a cup of water and saying, Sean, you're an idiot. Like, I need to stop that completely because I realized very quickly that when you say things over and over again, your ego will attach to that and start believing it, no matter yeah. what it is, whether it's negative or positive. So what I really started doing while I was in jail was catch myself, even if it was 20 minutes in the negative self-pity, you know, crappy talk about myself. You're worthless. You're an idiot. You're a scumbag. Look at this shit you stole from your, you know, your girlfriend's kids. Mm -hmm. You know, look at your crappy father, your crappy son. You're a failure. And then I would stop and I would start talking to myself. But you deserve forgiveness. You deserve acceptance. You deserve to be loved. Look at these beautiful traits you have. Look at your, you know, where your motives are and where your heart truly is. And eventually I just was all of a sudden I started developing this confidence in myself and this self-love and this self-acceptance. And yeah, I did some really messed up things, but this is what I'm turning it into and I'm causing it to be a beautiful thing. And Mm -hmm. I'm all of a sudden giving these crappy things that I've done, all of a sudden I see meaning in them and purpose and it's become a beautiful thing. And that's something I've tried to really you know, just share with everybody that I come in touch with, especially in addiction, but it even goes outside of addiction, just people in general, that you can better your entire life, your whole point of view. I mean, you have a paradigm shift completely. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you're looking at life in this incredible way and the cup is half full. Yeah. And I think that's a super important thing to really start, you know, pushing on people and trying to get them to just be like, you deserve love. Mm-hmm. You really do. And you need to realize that for yourself. And I remember my girlfriend said to me, she was like, she wrote me a letter, gave it to me before I went to my first rehab out from jail. And, you know, she just said, I believe in you. I have faith that you can do amazing things in this world. But if you don't believe that for yourself, my belief and faith will isn't worth nothing. Mm-hmm. And we it's one of the things I'm trying to hammer along with, you know, Room 9 when I do these podcasts. And as I get into recovery coaching and stuff is to really push that on the people is, you have to develop self-worth or else you'll sit in self-pity and self-pity just blocks everything good. Yeah. And we have our, um, you know, the patients practice it. So that negative self-talk that you were talking, mm-hmm. like say it out loud, but then challenge it out loud. You know, like mm-hmm. don't just keep it internal because you have to practice it. And it doesn't mean you have to believe it, right? Like it doesn't mean that just because you are challenging it, you believe it in that moment. But eventually you do. You, you do. And eventually yeah. you, you kind of start challenging yourself to stop saying things like that. You know, and we use the phrase sometimes in therapy, we'll talk about, you know, how would you talk to your, you know, 10 year old self or five year old self? Would you use that language? Probably not. And so you're like essentially learning how to parent yourself a little differently. And a lot of people get emotional when we talk about that because they mm-hmm. realize that they're not allowing themselves to be vulnerable. They're not allowing themselves to have a little bit of humility and, and be able to acknowledge that the decisions that they, they made don't define them. And that takes time to work through that shame. And that's critical to the work that we do. Yeah, shame is a big one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. Guilt and shame. Yeah, those are my two big things. 
you know what? When I say this is my first time around, technically I got clean on my own for a month. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest thing is I stopped using. And that was it. That's all I did. And then, and I just wanted, I didn't want to talk about anything. I was like, let's just put all this stuff underneath the carpet. We'll put that over there and we'll go on with our lives and act like nothing happened. And obviously that didn't work. You know, it was within 30 days I was back using again because of that, like, guilt and shame of, you know, one is I carried a lot of guilt and shame from my divorce and felt like I failed as a father, you know, to my children. And I also carried it for the crazy messed up things I was doing when I was using and not dealing with those and not talking about those things was, I mean, huge. Yeah. It's one of the biggest things I, you know, I've had to learn to really just, and that goes hand in hand with the self-talk mm -hmm. and talking to yourself love, you know, in a loving way. And it makes it easier to talk about these screwed up things that I've done because we've all done messed up things. We've all screwed up and have done hurtful things to people. Mm -hmm. And that's important. I think that's super important to develop that. And it is crazy when you say something out loud, how different it is. Yeah. I picked up from my mother that I hold full-fledged conversations out loud, so. <laughs> well, and the reason why we talk about saying it out loud, sometimes even like in group, is because other people might be thinking the same thing, mm -hmm. and you empower other people to kind of go, hmm, that's not just me. And then they might have conversations with each other, right, about how that formed. Like, and usually it's not even internal dialogue. It's that someone else told you that or someone else reinforced it. Mm -hmm. um, and so you start having these more meaningful conversations about what you can do in practicing things. When we have people who are holding a lot of shame, a lot of times that shame is so inward that they end up just hurting themselves more and more. And so we talk about, like, if you work through that shame a little bit, you're going to be kinder to yourself, gentler with yourself. But you're also going to invite people to come and help you just by, mm -hmm. you know, helping yourself. But it takes a ton of work and it's a lifetime, really, because you it can is. be, yeah. something can happen and it can, flood of shame can come all over again. And that's where we really want to make sure that people are remaining hopeful, even in those moments, you know, and in five years from now, if there's a moment of shame, it doesn't have to completely take you down. It could just be a moment where you're experiencing an emotion that's completely healthy and you know how to manage it. Yep. That is definitely uh, one of the biggest things I've seen. I think Brene Brown does an awesome oh, uh, she does. Brene does work on shame and obviously vulnerability. Yep. I think that's, that's one of the things I tell people all the time that she was the cause of my divorce. And people look at me, what? And <laughs> I remember I seen her first TED Talks on vulnerability when it first came out. And that was probably, what, eight years ago? Yeah. Probably seven, yeah, seven or eight years ago. And it just totally, I mean, it totally changed, especially my point of view as being a man and how, you know, I've been taught this, even shown, not necessarily like somebody's verbally said to me, you can't, you know, express these feelings, but it's all over in society. And I started doing that with my wife and she was like, no, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a huge thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, just having the courage to be vulnerable. I, you know, I was working in, I've been in kitchens my whole life. And I remember saying to somebody, I talked about crying or something and how I just discovered like, it's the same thing as that deep laughter, like the same release. Anyway, when you're done, you feel lighter you feel better, like there's just something about it that's so beautiful. And you know, he said something like, you're you little girl or something. And but, you know, I remember thinking like, it took me so much more courage, so much more bravery, so much more strength to be able to be open mm -hmm. and vulnerable. I mean, it took so much and I just, you just see that in people all over Yeah, that there's such a lack of that. And it does anybody who can, like I shared with you, the guy who um, did the podcast with me yesterday and how just fragile he was but they, i told him i was like dude you are just i mean this is incredible how mm -hmm. strong you are i don't think you even realize how strong you are for even be able to talk about these you know horrendous things that have happened to you in your life yeah well vulnerability you know we talk a lot about it not even just with the patients but with our staff mm -hmm. you know it's not just about expressing difficult emotions it's about expressing true emotions mm -hmm. and, and you know when you're vulnerable you're also open right yeah. you're open to hearing people you're open to feedback you're open to opportunity. And so you have to kind of look at it from different angles because a lot of times people equate it with sadness, like kind of how you did. Yeah. And I, you know, we kind of talk about, well, sad is part of the process, but we want you to be vulnerable for a lot of other reasons. Yeah. And you have to be able to manage that vulnerability in a healthy way because you can't be so vulnerable that you end up becoming, uh, having an unhealthy level of influence. Mm -hmm. So it's balance. Balance, the B word. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, I had everybody at Horizon Village 
Because that really is the key to everything in life is, is balance. And I had even the counselors at Horizon Village saying the B word. Yeah. <laughs> We'd all call it the B word. I'm going to use the B word here. And I mean, I think Carl Jung, I, he's probably one of my favorites. And I've you know read so much of what I can understand of his stuff anyway. But mm-hmm. he is a constant preacher of having balance among everything. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, it's the yin and yang, just having that perfect amount of balance of energy, female energy, male energy, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And apply, and it's a constant thing you have to do your whole life. Yeah. I mean, if you want to be balanced in anything, it's a constant awareness of it. I mean, my biggest thing is not doing the podcast all the time or stuff for room nine. Like I have to take time to myself, mm-hmm. sit down. It's okay to watch TV, and you know, turn your brain off every once in a while. Yeah, absolutely. So that's definitely a huge thing. So what are we coming up on? Fifty minutes. Holy crap! This time flies when we do this. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You're kind of. I mean, not that there's a set time. I usually keep it in the sign, but what are your, you know, your final kind of thoughts of the realm of addiction, what you see, what needs to be done, your advice, whether it's for parents or... Yeah, sure. Um, I feel like it's kind of been intertwined through the whole conversation mm-hmm. unintentionally, but with probably some t- intention too. You know, I'm very fortunate in my job because I get to have over 190 people every day come into services and get help in residential. And so... What I think I can say, and probably very similar to some of the people you've spoke with, is that, you know, recovery is possible. And I know that that's a simple statement, but I think a lot of times it, it when people are contemplating family members and loved ones trying to come in, they're not sure if it's possible. And so I think mm-hmm. just putting yourself around people who have gone through the journey or gone through, whether it be, you know, treatment or not, or even support systems, Hearing how people are able to put their lives back together and do a really, really amazing things. You know, one of the things about social media that I love, there's things I don't love about it, but there's things I love about it is I get to see sometimes like our patients do these really amazing things. And even you, Sean, you know, seeing these amazing things and whether you just kind of stumble upon it on a Facebook feed or a feed or a LinkedIn, you get to see people like really going out there and making some difference. And I think that I want people to really understand that that's the other part that we don't talk about enough. You know, we talk about, you know, overdoses, we talk about death, mm-hmm. we talk about crime, we talk about all that. But I really want people to, to to embrace that other half and empower that other half and encourage that other half because I think with doing that, we're going to open up the doors for the people who are maybe not ready yet or have that shame um, in looking at that. You know, and then with addiction, you know, it's not going away. While the substances change, while we might have another epidemic come down the road, you know, addiction's not going away. Um, it's been here for a long time, yeah. and I don't think it's going anywhere. <laughs> so I think we have to just really be open about, as a community, like, how do we contribute to all this? And how do we take active roles in trying to change that with the prevention and all that? Because while I'm blessed to be helping people that are, you know, needing treatment, I would love someday to not have that need and just be on the front end having conversations before people, you know, engage in life-changing decisions and helping them stay on the right path and so those are things that like I think are really important to understand and keep the communication open with everyone and you know I think that's really it I could talk about it for hours and hours Mm -hmm. but it's my passion too it's it's what I love to do and you know when I say passion you know I, I just love working with people you know there could be people here who had all different types of behavioral disorders and everyone's story is so unique and so mm. resilient. So you talk about the person you interviewed yesterday, you know, the amazing resiliency that we see. It's just mind blowing. It is. And I think you had a huge point. Like we need to focus on more of that yeah. and so much of the negative things because it's encouraging when you hear, you know, I have people message me all the time randomly, like about a certain episode where you, they hear somebody's story and it's just totally like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not the only one going through this and I can do this. This is possible. If this person went through this, I can definitely do it too. And I think that's a huge and awesome message to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. And as always, Anne surrounds herself with an amazing team of people. And it was awesome sitting down with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And there's I'm a huge fan of Horizon Village. I often say like, I, should, I need to get them to sponsor me as much as I'm talking them up, <laughs> or at least people are, I think they're going to, they're giving me money for as much as I talk them up. But you guys do have an awesome, awesome program. Yeah. I even told Anne when I did the podcast with her that I like was trying to think of a negative experience that from the counselor or team. And there's real, there's none I can really think of mm-hmm. uh, every, I felt like everybody, nobody was there. I should say to collect, just to collect a paycheck. I feel like everybody that was working there, like just wanted to help. Yeah. Well, and that's, 
the people we work with is what makes our jobs often manageable, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we have really challenging days. And, you know, Anne's probably said on her um, podcast, too, that is the other part of the job I love the most. You yeah. know, it's the people that are in the hallways and the people that are helping those patients on the front line. Yeah, and while it feels like you're sponsoring us, the reality <laughs> is is that there's a lot of programs that are doing great things. And, Absolutely, um, there is, yeah. And you had the opportunity to come through a program that, you know, we work really hard, but you worked really hard. And that's why you are able to kind of tell your story. Absolutely. Um, and talk about the benefits because you're experiencing the benefits. Yeah, that, I said that to the, when I was doing the podcast the other day was... You can be in the crappiest rehab or the most expensive one. It's really what you put into it, you'll get out. Yeah. And as long as, you know, a facility provides opportunities for people to get as much out of it as they want, then you can get that. So I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. And thank you for your time. I know you are busy. Yes, I am. But I can always make time. But thank you very much. I enjoyed doing this very much. Yeah. All right. Thanks. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, if you want to help us out go to room9podcast.com backslash support and you will find a letter to the donor and i encourage you to read that before you do anything on that page and also get to our contact page and fill out a form i'd like to stay in touch with you guys and send you out personal emails when it is possible to do so and just let you know that i'm here as well and i try not to be too absent in my responding especially at this early of a stage i like to try to stay in touch with everybody so make sure you fill out a contact form that'd be awesome facebook page we got a room nine podcast facebook group you could check out we are also on twitter at room nine so be sure to check that out instagram at room nine youtube room nine podcast make sure you get on support us let us know you're out there greatly appreciate it i am almost a certified recovery coach just have to put my hours in and take a test my classes are all done and that is something in the future i plan on offering as a resource for room nine is recovery coaching and want to start doing speaking engagements so there's a vision that i have and it's coming together and i'm glad you guys are with me for this ride all right much love thank you for your support and your encouragement and your love and i hope you guys are doing awesome and i look forward to talking with you next week monday Later. Wait a minute. You're Sean Cuddingham. That's right. How are you going to know? You're Sean Cuddingham. Stop asking fucking questions. That's right. Yeah. You better believe it. Oh, you better believe it. That's right. Come on. You're Sean Cuddingham. That's right. That's right. You better believe it. Wait a minute. You're Sean Cuddingham. Wait a minute. You're Sean Cuddingham.